0: Says now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings and again found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed. For day to come and the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and when they let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, paul said to the centurion and the soldiers unless these men stay in the ship you cannot be saved and father we <clears throat> just humbly ask again for your grace lord to be able to continue now in our worship As we submit our hearts to the Word of God, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to just prepare each one of us accordingly, and that, Lord, we might hear your voice clearly as we go through the Word of God this morning. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening, and we ask that you'd help us to hear what it is you have for us from this text, and we thank you in advance for such, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, because we are all flawed people, and because of that, prone to make mistakes and poor decisions from time to time, at at times we end up finding ourselves getting caught in storms, and sometimes those storms even leading to potential shipwrecks. And those storms that we get caught in, and then even sometimes the shipwrecks that we endure, are a lot of times in direct connection to kind of just being the consequences of those bad choices. And as we mentioned last time as we began this chapter together, sometimes we enter storms which are caused by ourselves. That is kind of self-inflicted trials. Sometimes we make bad decisions, we may make a series of poor choices, and then as the result of that, we end up facing stormy seas and problems and challenges. Other times, we may not necessarily do something wrong ourselves, but we can kind of be drawn into storms in connection to other people's choices. Maybe just those we're kind of on board with in life. Maybe our spouse or our family or people that we're just connected to in some way and they make some poor choices and we end up suffering as a result of their poor choices. We end up struggling and going through stormy seas because kind of they've made some bad decisions but it has a direct effect upon us. Well, look, during hard times we can either become selfish or we become servant-hearted. We can either become incredibly selfish and just do what's best for ourselves, or we can be servant-hearted and think about what may actually be something we can do to help serve in the difficult situation. And I can tell you this, my human nature, which is selfish and sinful, wants me to be prone to do what is best for myself. The spirit of Christ, when we allow him to work in our lives, will lead us instead in the midst of difficulties to consider what is best for others, even in hard circumstances, and look for ways to sacrifice and serve instead. And we see both of those responses happening even in this passage as we go on looking at the storm that they were caught in in this time. The background, again, remember briefly, Paul and other prisoners are now being transported to Rome which would be a long journey, multiple uh, stops along the way at different ports. They'd have to change ships multiple times. It was a long journey from Caesarea to Rome. And once they'd reached the port of Fair Havens, remember, Paul advised them to just stop there. It had already been difficult. The season was getting late. It was close to the winter season, which at that time, it was incredibly dangerous to keep sailing. And so Paul advised them, look, the impending winter storms are coming. I'm advising you don't strive any further. I don't think it's a good idea. The rest of the crew wanted to push just a little bit further for some reasons that they had in mind. However, Paul advised them, we saw in chapter 27, verse 10, saying to them very clearly, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo, but also our own lives. So Paul cautioned them, I don't think it's wise to push further, but they disregarded that counsel. And wanting to achieve their own desires, they followed their own ideas, and that bad decision resulted in them being caught in what was called a Euroclidon, like a major typhoon or a horrible hurricane at sea, which these winter seasons would bring. And remember, they lost all control of the boat, they were being driven by this deadly storm, and it appeared that they weren't even gonna survive. In fact, by verse 20, it says that they literally, even the sailors, had given up all hope that they would even somehow be spared. They were just convinced this is going to end in us all perishing at sea. Well, it was at that point that God gave Paul a word of promise after two weeks of struggling in this miserable storm, and he basically encouraged Paul that though they would lose the ship and all of its cargo, there would be great loss, there would be personal cost, but God was gonna be merciful and spare all of their lives. And Paul gave them this word of encouragement. He said, look, God has spoken to me. We're going to shipwreck. We are going to go through a very difficult thing, but God's promised that we're going to have our lives spared. And I believe that God will do what he has promised for us, which brought us to the end of verse 26, where Paul said, however, be aware we must run aground on a certain island. Now, as we continue on, we see the that very thing beginning now to unfold that Paul has spoken to them about. Look with me in verse 27. It says, now when the 14th night had come, yes, that means for two weeks, they'd been stuck at, at sea in a horrible storm. Two weeks. I don't wanna be stuck in a storm for two hours on board a ship. In fact, I don't even go out in boats because I get seasick, uh, even if I take a bath sometimes. So I just don't have the stomach for, for this kind of stuff. I can't imagine how horrible... They must have felt after two weeks going through this process. Well, after two weeks of being stuck at sea in a storm, it says, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. So after two straight weeks of being bounced all around in the sea, somehow, though it's the dark of night, the sailors can begin to perceive somehow through their expertise that land is somehow near. And they begin to recognize, you know, we sense that there's some land nearby. So verse 28 says they took soundings or measurements and found it to be 20 fathoms. And then they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So the sailors now start to take measurements to check if indeed this perception is accurate they sense we're getting close to land so they start to take some measurements to try and confirm that it tells us here that they were doing this taking soundings it was a process they would use and the first measurement came up at 20 fathoms that's 120 foot of depth in the water and then they went a little further and it says there in verse 28 that they then took another measurement and then it was only 15 fathoms which means that was now 90 feet deep of water so they can clearly tell okay obviously land is approaching because the water depth is decreasing so they're encouraged by this as they see the water getting more shallow but verse 29 tells us again keep in mind it says it's midnight so it's the dark of night verse 29 fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they become fearful, understandably, that they're going to shipwreck on the rocks and it's going to happen in the dark of night. And it's only midnight, which means they got another good, what, six hours until any daylight starts to come and they can see what they're doing. Now, obviously, to crash and have a shipwreck against rocks would be not only dangerous and disastrous, but it's all the more threatening if it's in the dark and you can't see when it's going to happen and what to do afterwards. So they are terrified that they're going to crash at night. So what they do to try and prevent this, it tells us verse 30, is it says, excuse me, verse 29, that they let down four anchors. And what they're trying to do is just get drag for the ship. They're letting down these anchors to try and catch some drag on the bottom, hoping to at least slow the ship down long enough for a few hours of daylight to come, or maybe even just have the ship get caught and stop altogether in its progress, hoping to avoid a crash at night. And notice fear and worry and this impending disaster does two things. First of all, it leads them to do everything they know how to do practically. That's what they're doing with the anchors to try and spare themselves and to keep themselves from going on the course of what looks like disaster. But notice also verse 29 tells us that it also drove them to seek God's help. You see what it says there at the end of verse 29? It says that not only did practical things, but it says, and then we prayed for day to come. That's a picture of in desperation and in fear and in worry in the midst of their human struggle being motivated to cry out to God and ask God to help. And boy, is it not a fitting illustration there? It is amazing how often things like human struggle and fear and being terrified that we're going to crash on the rocks and shipwreck in life, whether it's financially or maritally or just something going on in our life personally. Isn't it amazing how those kind of things have an incredible way of motivating prayer in people's lives? You know, how many of us, if we were to be honest, that may have been the very thing that drove us to a place where maybe we first cried out to God and came into a genuine personal relationship with God. It wasn't until it was stormy and we were headed for a shipwreck and we realized it, and it was for the first time, maybe we genuinely really cried out to God for his help in our life. And that was what drove us to the place where instead of shipwrecking, we actually experienced salvation. And we met Jesus and thank God for that. Uh, Thank God that he allowed us to, in the midst of that struggle, to come to that place where we would cry out to him and ask for help. And how many times are we not guilty of ultimately coming to a place where after we're in a real mess and a jam, that it's that hard moment that that's when we cry out to God in prayer. And, And difficulty has a way of motivating prayer. And I think God will allow us to experience anything necessary to get us talking to him sometime. Uh, and sometimes I, you know, I wonder even if maybe we don't do people a disservice when we step in too quick and try and send out the SOS rescue boat and we, we minimize people's potential to really cry out to God. Uh, they cry out to us, can you help me? Can you write me a check? Can you do something? Can you get me out of this jam? Can you fix my problem? And, and maybe in just love and mercy and compassion, we step in and we try and help out. And sometimes God goes, they were just about to pray. They were just about to finally cry out to me, and you saved them. I wanted to save them. <laughs> and so here, they're, they're motivated to cry out. It says they were praying for day to come on that boat. And keep in mind, initially, we know there was only two or three believers and almost 300 men on board. So uh, this prayer meeting breaks out, and verse 30 says, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when it says they let down the skiff, that was that little rowboat we talked about last time, into the sea under pretense or cover of putting out anchors from the prow. So notice what's going on. concern for their own welfare these sailors here in a very sneaky way go and they start to use the skiff or the rowboat that they had pulled on board earlier in the midst of the storm pretending like they're going to go back and let down a few more anchors and what they're really doing is letting the rowboat (laughs) down over the side of the boat hoping to use that to escape to spare themselves before the vessel shipwrecks on the rocks and notice it says they do this under pretense they're using sneaky tactics to try and escape from the situation by abandoning ship themselves and leaving everyone else to just perish on board now keep in mind here are and again take notice verse 30 here are the sailors doing this what a great crew that's probably the kind of cruise ship you want to go on right doesn't matter what happens to the passengers uh, us sailors are getting overboard we know when it's bad And so the sailors, keep in mind, are the ones trying to escape the situation. But can I jog your memory? Whose idea was it to go on this journey? The sailors. So the very individuals, if you would, whose idea this was, whose decisions got them into this situation, the very individuals who drew them by their actions into this storm are now trying to escape the situation. They're now trying to escape the consequences. In a sense, you might say they caused the storm, and now they, though they caused the storm, are trying to escape from the stormy consequences and just leave everybody else to suffer in the process. What a sad and unfortunate thing. They're willing that others crash and be destroyed while they abandon ship and self-preservation. They're willing to leave everybody else on board struggling through the problems personally and abandon ship themselves to escape the difficulty. Man, I look at that, and what comes to my mind is how cowardly and self-serving to, to escape hardship and to be someone who's going to abandon ship just because it's hard. But yet, truth be told, folks, sadly, that's a very common pattern that I see happen, unfortunately, and I'm sure you do at times as well, when people get into difficult spots, because the sinful human nature wants to do that kind of stuff, abandon ship, escape. Oh, no, I didn't mean to get this gal pregnant. I'm abandoning ship, man. I'm going to escape the whole process. That's her problem. And, and, and how many dysfunctional fathers abandon ship when they get someone pregnant and they didn't plan on it and they just decide to escape the whole situation now? How many unfortunate times has there been husbands and wives who've just abandoned ship on their marriage because it got hard? Listen, you, you got on board with that marriage. You stood at an altar and said, for better and for worse. People heard you say that. Now you're living it out and you're going to abandon ship because you're having things a little worse than better in the season that you're in? And how unfortunate here to see how... Prone people can be to want to seek escape. Things get hard. And sadly, sometimes people even will be the ones who cause the problem. They create the storm and then they want to abandon ship. They want to escape and they're willing to leave their spouse, their family, their children, other people. They're willing to leave everybody else to struggle and, and go through all the difficulties, and, and they'll escape and let everybody else struggle in the business, and they're going to go off and do their own thing. Or, you know, Truth be told, I, I've seen people do this in churches at times. And we'll just let everybody else. I'm, I'm getting out of here, but we'll just let everybody else fall apart at the seams. And it's so sad, so, so sad. And here are these sailors, again, demonstrating the tendency of the human nature they want to abandon ship they're trying to escape the problems and it tells us in verse 31 there that paul said to the centurion remember that's the roman commander and to the soldiers those are the guys packing weapons good idea paul unless these men who are trying to escape he says stay in the ship you cannot be saved so look what paul does sensing the selfishness of these sailors who are trying to abandon ship and their wrong behavior, Paul speaks up to stop it. Paul turns to the centurion and to the soldiers. He goes to the Roman military commander and his guards who have weapons and who are, by God's design, given authority to exercise their authority to subdue wrong behavior, and he says, look, I need a little assistance here. These guys are trying to escape and abandon and leave us on board. And they're the only ones that know how to navigate this ship. And he says, unless these guys stay on board, none of us are going to be able to be saved or spared. And Paul here shows great wisdom. Again, the military and the police, the Bible tells us, Romans 13, their purpose of existence is to subdue wrongdoing and evil behavior. So Paul says, you guys have the weapons. Could you help me out here? Could you subdue this wrong, selfish behavior? They're trying to jump off the ship and leave us to just shipwreck. And he says, this behavior has to be stopped. It's wrong. It's irresponsible. And it threatens all of our survival. And I appreciate Paul's wisdom in his heart here to kind of take a stand. He says, look, these sailors have to stay on board and embrace their share of responsibility in this. Paul's saying this isn't right for them to just abandon ship and leave us to navigate the difficulty. Paul's saying they're a direct part of this. They caused this, actually, Paul could have said. (laughs) They're a direct part of this, so they need to participate in riding it out as we all are at this point. They need to stay involved. These sailors were the best qualified to guide and control the ship, so their participation in the process was necessary because it ensured the best result for everybody at this point. So Paul wanted them to stay on board and not selfishly depart to embrace the responsibility that they needed to not just try and escape it because they didn't want to go through the challenges. And I love how Paul took a firm stand here that these men were responsible for the ordeal and they needed to take personal responsibility for it and ride it out just like everybody else on board and be willing to do their part. You know, may God give us the grace sometimes to maybe be an advocate like Paul with that kind of wisdom to speak up when these kind of things are happening, to not be afraid to be an individual once a time, to, to warn of the danger and the ruin it causes to others when people want to just escape a situation, or to be willing to call out, look, that's not right for you to just abandon ship in this situation, for you to just try and take an escape route. It's not right. And to be willing to be someone who would speak against that. You know, Sometimes it is scary or hard, I understand, But sometimes, folks, listen, sometimes doing what's right means staying on board in a situation. You may be tempted at times to abandon ship. It may be looking like the best thing to do is to just try and escape in self-preservation in a situation. But sometimes the right thing is to stay on board for the sake of everybody else involved. And to ride it out and to contribute your part and participate in ways that you should to help in the situation. So verse 32 tells us after Paul says this, I like it. It says the soldiers went over and they cut away the ropes of the skiff and they let it fall off. So I love what these soldiers do here. They just wisely take practical steps to cut off the escape route of the current situation. They go over, they just cut the ropes And the rowboat floats away, and now what have they done? They have put an end to any opportunity to escape the situation. They've cut off the potential to be able to abandon ship and to leave everyone else on board to struggle while they take an escape route themselves. You know, by way of application, it is a wonderful example they're set before us because sometimes it is necessary in our lives to do what is right to kind of cut off opportunity for escape routes. You want me to tell you one of the first ways that that works? When my wife and I got married, the word divorce was a curse word. It wasn't an option. We entered marriage with the mentality, it's not an option. When you leave an escape clause, you're setting yourself up for the opportunity to take the escape hatch. Sometimes in life, we need to, in practical ways and personal ways, when we realize, hey, there's an opportunity to get out of this or escape out of this, sometimes we almost need to take practical measures encourage to say, you know what? That is an avenue of escape, and I'm tempted to take that avenue of escape, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut off the avenue of ever escaping. I'm going to do whatever I got to do to hinder the ability for me to jump out of this situation or abandon ship and do what's necessary to almost keep ourselves on board at times when it would be wrong for us to just abandon ship because we're afraid, or it's hard, or it's difficult. And especially if it's something where we have entered into something and we have, through our ideas or our actions or our decisions, created the situation that we are now in, then we need to take responsibility for that. And it may be not smooth sailing. But you know what? If we launch that ship, then it is not right for us if we launch that ship to just leave everybody else struggling on board and to escape and jump overboard. We need to stay on board and continue to be faithful and keep doing what's right in situations. I love how these sailors, they they just cut off the opportunity. So it's not possible for this to happen. So verse 32, they cut away the rowboat. Verse 33 says, and as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food. Saying, Today is the 14th day. You've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. So, Paul's sensing, understandably, that morale's pretty low. After two weeks in this storm, all they've been through, Paul can tell morale is low. And not only that, people are pretty weary at this point in time. They're very weak and anemic feeling. So he offers some practical encouragement to instill hope. For two weeks, they'd struggled in a storm, and they hadn't eaten any food. Not because they were trying to be spiritual and fast and pray. They were seasick, horribly. Nobody could keep anything down. But having not been eating food and feeling horrible and seasick, they were depleted of energy, and they were weak. And they were unable to kind of function as they needed to. And Paul here gives them an encouragement to try and instill some hope and help them survive the rest of this ordeal. And in order to do that, Paul tells them, look, I want you to be hopeful. God promised not a hair of our heads is going to be lost. Somebody's saying, look, nobody's going to lose their life. God's going to take care of us. But he says we need to do some practical things in order to survive this ordeal. So Paul says to them, in light of that, verse 34, he says, I'm urging you, take some nourishment, for this will be your survival. See, though God gave them a promise that they were going to be okay in the end, God did not promise it wasn't going to still be difficult to ride out the process. The consequences were still going to be there. So Paul says, in light of that, take some nourishment, for this is your survival. Now, we're going to see the reason why is because after they crash— and and the boat gets stuck into the, the ground and the ship starts falling apart, they're going to have to jump out and they're going to have to swim their way to shore. And they're extremely weak and tired. And so Paul, understanding that they needed some strength to be able to finish out this process, to be nourished would help ensure them the ability to participate in the part of the process that still was there. And they may not feel like eating, But Paul says, look, just because you don't feel like eating, despite how you feel, he says, you need to do it. So he implores them. He says there in verse 34, take some nourishment because that's going to determine your ability to survive. And I look at this and I think, though that's true practically there, what a great reminder for us in our own personal storms that we as well need to do what verse 34 says. We need to take nourishment to ensure our survival as we navigate our way through the stormy waters and the difficult situations and even the harsh shipwrecks that sometimes we go through to make sure that we can survive the ordeal. And do you know where we receive our spiritual nourishment? Right here. We need to be nourished by the word of God, by the milk of the word and the food of God's word that strengthens our soul. It tells us in Psalm 118, That God's word is like honey. It strengthens us, it reinvigorates us. Job says, I esteem your word more than my necessary food. And we need to be taking nourishment from the word of God if we're going to have the strength to get through some of the storms and difficulties and hard things that we go through. Whether we're in a stormy season because it's just a part of a trial of life and we didn't do anything wrong, but we're just, as we talked about, sometimes a storm isn't always a bad decision we made. It's Just life's hard, and we go through difficulties and challenges and trials. It's a part of life. Sometimes we're in a storm because other people made some bad decisions, and now we're struggling, like Paul, on board with them because of some poor decisions that somebody we're attached to made. Sometimes we make our own poor decisions and create our own storms, and we're struggling because of that. But in those times, what tends to happen is we get so disoriented and we get so kind of just spun around and just seasick in the situation, we start neglecting our own condition and we're weak and we're anemic. And God's saying, look, I want you to survive this thing. You need to keep yourself nourished. You need to stay strong in the Lord and continue to take nourishment from the word of God because that word of God is the source of your spiritual strength is what's gonna nourish you to survive this storm to continue to navigate your way or do what you have to do, swim in the shore and your part in the process. And maybe that's a word of reminder for some of us this morning. If you're going through a hard time, be careful of getting distracted from spiritual care in your own life. You need to stay strong in the word and stay strong in the Lord so that you can make your way through the rest of the ordeal. So he says, take some nourishment. And then verse 35, it says, and then when Paul said these things, he himself took bread gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. So Paul leads by example. Again, probably nobody felt like eating. I can totally expect how that would be real. But Paul takes some bread and he says, Lord, I thank you that we still have some food. Lord, I thank you that you're going to get us through. And he just starts praying. What a great example. He just starts praying and thanking God for the food they had on board there. And then he starts to partake of some of it, setting an example for the rest of them to encourage others to eat as well, even though maybe they didn't feel like eating also. And Paul, in a beautiful way, encourages the rest on board. And, you know, sometimes, folks, the Lord may have us on board a ship that is struggling or even on a ship that's on its way to sinking, because maybe he just might want to use your example in the midst of that to help guide everybody else on board to some of the things that they need to do so that they would be willing to follow your example in the midst of that storm and be helped. Because look what verse 36 says, and then they were all encouraged, as they saw Paul's example. And then they took food themselves. And in all, there were 276 persons on the ship. So it's amazing to consider how powerful the example of just one person can be. Paul partakes of this food and the effect it has on the other 276 passengers is it says they're encouraged and how people need encouragement when they're on a sinking ship. And there's a lot of people in stormy waters in our world around us. There's a lot of people who are headed towards shipwreck and how people need people like you and I to do things to bring encouragement into those situations and to to give leading examples for them that they can follow and it says they now all start to eat they're being strengthened and verse 38 says and when they had eaten enough they then lightened the ship and the threw out the wheat the rest of the cargo into the sea so once they're sufficiently nourished they realize okay we've been sufficiently nourished but you know what we now need to cast away the rest of the valuable cargo if somehow we're going to make it to the shore because they wanted to lighten the ship and they were going to have to suffer some economic loss to prepare for the crash ahead. And again, though they're doing better personally, please take notice, they are doing better personally. But the reality is the problematic consequences didn't go away. Just because they're feeling better and they're doing better personally, now they've eaten and they're encouraged They still have to do the wisest things possible to navigate humbly to prepare what's still involved as they go through the process of the the storm and the shipwreck. The consequences did not go away, but they were doing the best they could to now humbly prepare for those consequences. So verse 39 says, and when it was day, they did not recognize the land. That is, they didn't recognize the landmass, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they plan to run the ship if possible and they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea meanwhile loosening the rudder ropes and they hoisted the main sail to the wind and made for the shore so they didn't recognize the landmass but they saw a bay area with a beach out in front of them and they thought that's probably the best possible place to aim towards the boat so that we can perhaps crash right there and run the ship into the shoreline probably going to give us the best chance to survive now let me trace back to something take notice because the sailors stayed on board who do you think had the strategic expertise with nautical and sea oriented decisions to look at the bay and to see the beach and say you know what if we're going to shipwreck That's probably the best place to aim the boat. And then they do all these things with the sails and the anchors. And who did all that? The sailors. Paul said, unless they stay on board, the rest of us aren't going to make it. And because they stayed on board, take notice, because they didn't abandon ship. Because they stayed on board when the time came, God used them because they didn't abandon ship. God used them to do the things that they needed to do that ended up sparing themselves and sparing everyone else from suffering more or ultimately perishing in the process. Boy, what a great reminder. As hard as it may be sometimes when we are stuck enduring a storm, sometimes staying on board is what makes the difference between you and other people having a lot better chance of survival in the process as compared to things just falling apart even worse. And it doesn't look like that when you're in the storm because we just want to escape. We just want to abandon ship. But sometimes your willingness to stick it out and stay on board is what results in bringing out best for everyone else caught in the process with you. So verse 41 says, but striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow struck fast. That is the front of the ship and remained immovable. So they're now lodged into the land there on the shoreline. But the stern, the back of the ship was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So as God had promised, the ship would do what? Run aground on a certain island. That's exactly what just happened. Now God's words unfolding. But as they run aground into a certain island, notice the violence of the waves, it says, is breaking apart the ship in pieces as this dangerous storm is still battering it from behind. So the ship is falling apart. That's why verse 42 says the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape, as we said last time. A A Roman soldier, if they lost their prisoner, they would lose their life. So they're thinking, you know what? everybody's going to be jumping overboard. Let's kill the prisoners. We can at least drag their bodies to shore, and we still have evidence that we did not lose our prisoners. They just died at sea. And so they're considering doing this. But it tells us, however, in verse 43, but the centurion wanting to save Paul, good thing Paul had developed a good relationship with the centurion, he kept them from their purpose. And he commanded instead that those who could swim jump overboard first, and get to land. So God intervenes. The centurion has a favorable heart towards Paul, and he says, look, don't kill the prisoners. He takes control of his his guards, and he says, whoever can swim, jump overboard, start paddling for the shore. So they're now all jumping into the water. They're paddling, trying to get to the shore, and verse 44 says, and the rest, some on boards, and some on parts of the ship. And there you have in the Bible the first evidence of surfing. If you're looking for a biblical verse to be a surfer, there you go. Probably the best proof text you can have. Some on boards, right? Took boards in stormy, wavy water to get to the shoreline. There you go. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Now, take notice, they all escaped safely to land. I point that out because eventually everybody was able to escape the storm. Eventually everybody got out of the struggle. But notice, it was not until God's timing and purposes were fulfilled through the difficult experiences. Eventually everybody did escape because we want to escape right when it's hard, right? This is hard, man. I want to get out of this. This is difficult. I'm abandoning ship. It's too hard. I can't handle it. I'm going to die. Eventually, they all escaped. God took care of everybody. Eventually, they all got out of the storm. They all got back on safe, stable land once again. At times, it was hard, and they felt hopeless, but God helped them get through it, and eventually, they escaped, and stability returned, but not until God let them weather the storm because weathering the storm was part of the process. It's what certainly... Burned into every one of their minds the next time we're at Fairhaven's and we're thinking about launching into something and somebody says, I don't know if that would be a really good idea. They might think different next time because they have the memory of the storm. And so sometimes it's the process that helps us to kind of learn the lessons that we need to. So imagine they are soaking wet, freezing cold, exhausted, They float to shore and verse one of chapter 28 says, and when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. Malta is a a very tiny, tiny little island. If you look at a map right out in the middle of the open sea off the shores of Sicily, Sicily. And listen, if they would have missed Malta, they would have been lost out in the open seas. Don't tell me God wasn't directing even in the midst of that storm. Even in the midst of that storm, it looked out of control. It looked like, and they had, honestly, right? They had lost control themselves. But God hadn't lost control because God navigated them perfectly to this tiny little island so they hit this landmass so that they can be, in a sense, spared. Interesting, the word Malta actually means refuge. What a fitting term for what the word Malta means, (laughs) refuge. And God is a gracious way to bring us to a place of refuge, to be renewed and refreshed, to help us to regain our strength and regroup, if you would, after stormy seas. And that's exactly what they needed. So they now land at refuge. They land at Malta. And verse 2 says, And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So, though they were total strangers to these natives on Malta and they just shipwrecked on their island here, notice the natives, it says, were doing everything they could to take care of them. It says they started up a fire to help them dry out and to warm up their bodies. It says they welcomed us very graciously th- rather than considering them a burden. And not only did they welcome them and make them a fire, but it says, verse 2, Luke points out, he says they were showing us unusual kindness unusual kindness he says it was surprising that rather than being burdened by 276 people showing up on their shoreline they were being so kind to us they were they were treating us in such gracious ways and helping us out you know i look at that example there in verse two and i think wow that's the the reaction of it says a group of natives who obviously probably don't know the lord jesus christ they're not servants of god They're just native people on this island, but they're showing unusual kindness, helping out those who've just washed up on their shore after a horrible storm and a shipwreck. And I can say for all of us this morning, that should cause us to search our hearts, because if that's the way, if you might say native, unconverted people treated those who just went through a storm and shipwrecked up on their shores, what should you and I as servants of Jesus Christ be like? When sometimes washing up onto the shores of our life and our little space and sphere of life and influence come people who've just gone through a horrible storm or they come shipwrecking on our doorstep. Do we find ourselves bothered by them and irritated? Oh, great, now you brought me your mess. Couldn't you have landed on somebody else's island? What do you got to come contaminate my shores for? Or instead, do we allow the love of God to go through our heart And do we show people unusual kindness, the kindness of God that gives them an unusual experience of why are these people being so kind to me? Why is he being so kind to me? I just shipwrecked. And now this person's being unusually kind to me. It's a great testimony for the Lord to be able to show people that kind of kindness. And God gives us that opportunity when people come unto our shores after a shipwreck or storm. Verse 3 says, And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on Paul's hand. Well, Paul can't win for losing, can he? Shipwreck to a snake bite. He could have titled the message that. shipwreck to a snake bite. So look what happens here. Everyone else is huddled around the fire enjoying it. And what's Paul doing? Paul's thinking about how to take care of people. Everyone else, they're chattering, they're freezing, they're soaking wet, they're trying to fight for closeness to the fire. 276 people, you know they're fighting for space around the fire. And as everyone else is enjoying the fire, Paul realizes fires need wood to keep burning. And there are some things that need to happen if I'm going to take care of everybody that's around me here. And so Paul here, rather than fighting for a place by the fire, saying, hey, by the way, I didn't cause the storm I'm a rabbi, Um, I gave you advice, I gave you counsel. What's Paul doing? Paul's walking up and down the shoreline, probably chattering, freezing cold himself still, and what's he doing? Displaying servanthood, he's picking up twigs. He's picking up sticks on the beach. He's going and getting more firewood. Here Paul demonstrates to me the servant-hearted nature of Jesus. Remember John 13, where Jesus, seeing the need of the dirty feet of the disciples, he just gets up and he starts washing the disciples dirty feet and what a great example paul is here of again what it means to be a servant of the lord and a true servant leader what great lessons can be learned that Paul's out picking up firewood to keep the fire going a couple things if i could just draw your attention to first of all i learned from paul there that there is no task that is too small for a servant of god no task is too small too menial too insignificant paul's walking around picking up twigs he's picking up firewood just to keep a fire going to take care of others and again a lot of times it's our willingness to do small tasks faithfully that proves our ability to do greater tasks faithfully in god's economy secondly take notice as well that a servant of god is always looking for opportunities to serve that's what a servant of god does They're always looking for opportunities to serve. Nobody here asked Paul to do this. Hey, Paul, could you go fetch some firewood? I don't think Paul even said, "Uh, would anybody want me to go get some more firewood? Do you think that would be helpful? Paul just saw what needed to be done and he just went and did it. He just went and did it. To me, that is the greatest indication of spirit-led ministry, self-initiated service, being a self-starter. You just see what needs to be done and you do stuff. Paul realized we need some firewood. I'm gonna go pick up some firewood that spirit led ministry servanthood just looking for things that need to be done you don't have to ask does it need to be done you don't have to wait until you're told what to do act upon something if it needs to be done and whatever the situation is a servant of God just always makes himself useful productive that's what a servant does Jesus said I didn't come to be served but to serve. And here we see Paul doing that very thing so beautifully, but notice when does the snake bite Paul's hand in verse three there when he's putting wood on the fire again, Genesis three, what's the first way Satan shows up in the Bible as a serpent. So when does the serpent strike in Paul's life when he's putting wood on the fire, when he's putting wood on the fire and you know what folks be aware of this spiritual reality A lot of times when the serpent strikes, when Satan strikes in your life, it's going to be when you're trying to put wood on the fire. When you're trying to put wood on the fire of your own spiritual life, the serpent's probably going to strike because he's not going to want to see you do that. Or maybe if you're just trying to serve people and do ministry or be a servant in your house, that's when the serpent is going to strike. And here Paul, he bit with this snake. He's got to think, are you kidding me? The snake's just hanging off of his hand. Look at verse four. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he's escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. So we call that poetic justice. They see this snake hanging off of Paul's hand now after he just threw wood on the fire. And they say, ah, that guy must be a murderer. Survived the storm. But now the snake's got him. He must be a murderer. They assume he must be a guilty or a rotten man somehow. Look at verse 5. But Paul shook off the creature (laughs) into the fire and suffered no harm. This is one of my favorite scenes of the Apostle Paul. I I don't know what it is, but there's just something about Paul's incredible faith in God. And it's kind of just, you know, tough, stubborn personality that I really admire here. I mean, think about this. Here's the snake hanging from his hand after he just went through all that he has done. I mean, he's been painfully bitten by a poisonous serpent. He's then rudely blasted by the words of people around him. But what's amazing is Paul doesn't make a big deal over it. He doesn't make a big deal over it. He knew God called him to minister in Rome. So he's thinking, all right, God, you're going to have to work this one out, too. And he just just shakes the snake back into the fire. And it says, verse five, he suffered no harm. I like that. Paul didn't get embittered and angry and shake his fist at God. God, why would you let this happen to me? I'm serving you. Why would you let this painful thing happen to me? He doesn't do that. He doesn't shake his fist at the people. How dare you people say mean things to me after all I do to help you out? Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't get depressed. He doesn't fall into self-pity. He doesn't ask all the why questions. He doesn't assume this is the end and just give up and fall over and die on the spot. He doesn't waste time complaining. He didn't even go and get a bunch of prescriptions to try and cope with his emotions. Because as Americans, we lead the pharmaceutical industry for handling with our problems that way. What does Paul do? In faith, by the grace of God... He just shakes the snake back into the fire and he suffers no harm. And he just walks forward and God honors it. Look, perhaps recently the serpent has struck in your own life. You really only got two options. You can get all shaken up and let it stumble you and just send you into a spiral downward. Or you can shake it off in faith You can shake it off. And trust God and his grace and that God's in control and taking care of you and he'll work it out somehow. Paul shook it off in verse 6. says, however, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly die. That's what they expected. He was going to fall down. But after they looked on for a long time and saw no harm come, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. That's what you call the fickleness of humanity. First, he's a murderer. Now, because he can shake a snake off and he doesn't fall down and die, they change their mind and they say, "Oh, maybe he's a God or something. But again, verse six is a good reminder to us, like with Paul. Always remember when you go through something hard, people are looking on and sometimes they may even change their mind depending upon how you deal with the difficulty. Because they look on, you're struck by something very dangerous, very difficult, very hard, and they're looking on saying, that guy's going to die. There's no way she's going to survive that. And when you, by the grace of God and faith and trust in the Lord, overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, people go, wow. Maybe God's real. Maybe God's real. How did he overcome that? How did she overcome that? And it's amazing the power of testimony that we can have when we endure a painful, for a difficult circumstance in ways that are victorious and trust in the Lord. So verse seven says, and in that region, there was also an estate and leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. So one of the famous and wealthy people invite them into their homes and they're being entertained. And it comes to attention that he has a sick relative. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and laid hands on him and healed him. So Publius's father has what was likely referred to as malta fever, caused severe high fevers and very painful stomach and bowel issues leading to dehydration and weakness. And Paul apparently becomes aware of this and asks if he can pray for his healing. And they bring him to Paul or bring Paul to him. And it says that Paul lays hands on him and prays for him. And God miraculously through the gift of a miracle of healing, God miraculously heals this father, which brings us to the conclusion of verse nine. So when this was done, the rest of those on the Island who had diseases also came and were healed. Notice the exercise of ministry in this one man's home opens up a doorway, what, for community-wide ministry with many others who now come and experience help. As they hear of the miracle power of God, as Paul prays for this man's healing, it opens up the doorways, and now what started as a ministry in a home becomes a ministry in the whole community. Don't ever diminish the value of helping one person or informal home ministry. I could tell you a lot of great ministries that started from a home. And here Paul now is ministering to the whole community. And look, folks, how God takes a bad situation and he turns it for something good in the end result. What started out as a struggle at sea and then a hard shipwreck ends up now resulting in a strategic opportunity to minister and good things happening in the end. Please hear me this morning. God can turn a curse into a blessing. Sometimes what it requires is by faith, you got to stay on board. You got to ride it out and give God time.